Get in here, Dickie. What is it, Mrs. Wolf? We're going to change the formula of Mrs. Wolf's high-fructose chokeable easy-make stuffing, but we're not going to tell the customers. But Mrs. Wolf's high-fructose chokeable easy-make stuffing is our most popular product. People have loved it for 35 years. Why change it? For starters, way too many people choke on it. It's those pieces the size of puppy chow. They get stuck in people's windpipes. It's right in the name, ma'am. It's part of what people love. I also want to take out the tiny glass beads. 200 in every box, guaranteed. Not anymore. But it's not the same product without them, Mrs. Wolf. Times change, okay? People don't like the same stuff anymore, but they don't know that they don't like it. They think they still do. People are such idiots. If you tell them you're taking away the glass beads and the choking hazards, they'll go ape nuts. Wait, are we taking out the ape nuts, too? No, those can stay, but let's get this started today, Dunkelheimer. That's not my name. It is, too. I changed it legally six months ago. Saw no need to tell you. That explains why I can't find my paycheck. No, that's because I fired you last year. Never announced it. You have a strange way of operating, Mrs. Wolf. The world is different now. You probably wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mamas sung us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Write that down. It could be a jingle or something. And now he's convinced they make Triscuits one thousandth of a percent smaller every month. Colin McEnroe. It's true. Uh, over time, they are. I measure them every... I get a box every month. I measure them. They're shrinking. Uh, it's what the big manufacturers do. They don't tell us. They don't want us to know. All right. That's the kind of paranoia you're going to hear on the nose today <laughs> and lots of other stuff as well. Uh, everybody on the nose today is in the middle of complicated job changes, uh, especially Jacques Lamar, uh, who is the outgoing, very outgoing, I would say, director of communication. Oh, yes. I didn't even know that was your title. Uh, <laughs> out director, outgoing something or other uh, at the Mark Twain house. And now he's the incoming something or other at something with the word buzz in it. What's buzz it engine. Buzz engine. In West. Hartford, Buzz yes. Buzz Engine. Yes. Wow. Our board president introduced it last night as Buzz Saw. Yeah, I'm just so way too old to work for anything <laughs> with the name Buzz, Buzz in it. Yeah. Not BuzzFeed. Uh, <laughs> Definitely so, not Gawker. That's right. So, uh, Tanisha Dugan has been working at TheaterWorks. She's uh, starting her own late night show on BET. Um, Centric. Uh, all right. So, and Rich Holland, <clears throat> excuse me, principal and design director at CoLab, uh, but uh, very soon will be Pope. Uh, <laughs> so no, actually, the only real job uh, job change, unless that's not obvious. In case that's not obvious, is Jacques. He is. Well, I haven't oh, told you. Yet. We haven't. That's right. The rest of them haven't been announced. Ignore them. All right. So a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk in, indeed about an iconic uh, sort of uh, brand name product, a food uh, prepared food brand name product that really did change its formula and didn't tell anybody, let people buy 50 million boxes of the new stuff, and then announced it. We'll talk, talk about why that is. We'll also talk about uh, a song that seems to sum up a certain malaise. <laughs> as, a matter, as a matter of fact, it's the most malaise-written pop song I can really I can, <laughs> I can think of anyway, but I'm sure there are others. Uh, we'll talk about that. It's kind of a surprise hit. Uh, but before we do that, all that, we're going to go right into the baseball locker room uh, where I, Adam yes. LaRoche, <laughs> <That's> right, <laughs> right where Jacques wants to go, number one. <laughs> place. So um, usually when Jacques is in the baseball locker room, he's in there to explain the infield fly rule to them. Uh, this time, though, we are going to have to talk to them pretty seriously about family relationships because, in fact, Adam LaRoche, who's uh, sort of a journeyman first baseman, uh, has walked away from his the second year of his two-year contract with the Chicago White Sox, leaving $13 million on the table. Uh, the reason for this, because, in fact, the White Sox uh, have in his view, gone back on their uh, promise to allow um, his son Drake to uh, be in the locker room every day. Uh, Drake's a, a kid. 
<laughs> not the rapper. Not the rapper. Yeah, uh, he is. Uh, how's he, is he for the cake? He's fourteen, right? 14. He's, 14. Yeah, 14. he's fourteen years old. Uh, he's been hanging around the locker room every day, like one hundred percent of the time. He's there in what they call in sports the clubhouse, uh, and so uh, this is sort of being viewed two different ways. I mean, there really are kind of two different ways to view the story. One of them is this guy's a heroic father. He really wants to spend a lot of time with his son. Uh, it's so important to him that commitment that he made to spend a lot of time with his son and to have his son around the workplace is so uh, important to him. He's willing to leave $13 million on the table. $13 million, by the way, that nobody else is very likely to offer him. He's not hitting that well these days. Uh, and uh, the other way to look at it is, well, 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 we'll figure out what the other way to look at it. There is another way of looking at it. It's the way I look at it. But anyway, uh, we'll find out what, how the panel looks at it uh, first. So, Rich, uh, I know you announced right around the house that, uh, that yeah. you do something like that for your kids, right? I Without, without thinking twice about it. Um, but, of course, the... The entire situation would have to be painted exactly the same. I would have had to have been working for the past 12 years earning about $13 million a year um, and put a bunch of that in the bank uh, to be able to walk away um, and stand on principle and most likely do a, a talk show about being an awesome dad right. where I take my kid. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think it would be better if you then started the talk show about being an awesome dad and refused to let your kid come to <laughs> So, and, and I, if I understand this, uh, you, you, this idea was, at least initially, in the initial way it was framed, not necessarily greeted enthusiastically uh, by everybody in your family. No, it was certainly not. Um, I had a wife who was not very thrilled with this idea that I would actually walk away from, from some real pay dirt. Um, but you can't but, start the conversation, honey, I'm going to give up $13 million. You, ha- you have to set it up better than you probably did. Yeah, and no, I'm not very good at framing. Um, and you should see the house I built. Uh, so the the way um, the way I brought it up was, you know, we were talking about the show. It's like, hey, there's this guy, you know, and he was with his kid all the time and he really wants to be with his kid. And that's something that he that he deeply believes in. It's a part of their family values and, you know, and just didn't work with the team. Uh, it didn't work with the context that he wanted to do this. And he walked away. Um, the part that's amazing to me is uh, is the amount of conversation that's actually going on around this. It's actually a pretty simple thing as far as I could see. Didn't make sense for the team. Something that the dad wanted to do and let it be. Um, uh, and they ended their relationship in a manner that seemed fairly amicable. But in our new social dynamic... Um, everybody's got to have a say mm. in how he's raising his his kids, whether it's ethical of this team to get in the way of what his family dynamics are. And, you know, and, and the degree of conversation that takes place around this leads to a scenario where the team now has to voice their perspective and, you know, and to, to let the universe know that they're good guys and that they're not trying to split, you know, dad and child. And That's the sort of piece that is, like, interesting to me because I feel like from the articles that I've been reading that it seems as if the teammates were the ones who were griping mm-hmm. about it originally and then sort of once – he decided he was going to leave. The teammates were like, no, we love Drake. We love having him in the clubhouse. Like, you know, I don't know why the team is making you make this decision. And that's the piece that bugs me because Mm -hmm. I'm a woman who brings her kid to work on occasion. And I would rather the honesty of, like, actually not really a fan of the kid straight up than, like, the idea that I have to be kind to you because you're a mom and you have this kid to your face, even though that's not how I actually feel. 
You know, the, 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 apropos of that, we're, we're not going to be talking about Gary Shandling during the show today, although I will talk about him at the end. But um, I read this interview, a uh, profile of him in which Judge uh, Judd Apatow, who worked uh, on the Larry Sanders show, uh, said the main lesson Shandling taught him on Sanders was that the, was that the curtain that separated backstage from onstage was just a metaphor for how we all hide our true selves. He always talked about how it's incredibly rare for people to say what they mean. People are lying a great deal of the time. That was the root of the show's humor, Apatow says, the disconnect between, quote, what people are trying to project versus what they're actually feeling. And I I think you're right about this. This is the way the story has unfolded. It, it, it's had a couple of different iterations and, and different sort of offshoots of the group that we could call the players have said contradictory things, mm-hmm. which suggests that, you know. So, but actually, would I you? I think it's fair. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I love my kid, but I don't even want to be around him all the time. So, like, <laughs> it's fair enough, you know, for my coworkers to feel like when they come to work, it's like their adult time. And,. Yeah. I get that. Mm. It's the it's the sort of communication between the employees that I feel like is lacking. It's fascinating because if we're talking about kids, I'm like, I want everybody to develop a little more tolerance. But now, if we were talking about bringing dogs to the office, that would be a whole other. <laughs> we thing. did that. We did that. We did that show. That was the Amazon show uh, where you bring the dogs to the office. So what about it, Jacques? You get to. Uh, you get to be Judge Judy on this one. <laughs> oh. Judge Judy, who you already booked for. Yes, the yeah. Sold out already. Yeah, all right. uh, going out on top. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, I, uh, I'm i the only one in this room that, that does not have children. I am childless by choice. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, I have worked with some people who brought kids to work. And... I actually find that it's not necessarily the child that's disruptive to the workplace. <laughs> that it's, it's the, the parent enjoying the children. No, it's the parent. Yeah. It's the parent. They oftentimes they have to stop working to parent, and so it ends up that they're less productive in the work environment by having their children with them because they have to stop whatever they're doing to be you know responsive and responsible. And so, you know, when I heard this story, I mean, A, it seems to me that a locker room, uh, as much as I would enjoy being there, uh, is not necessarily the appropriate place for a child. And it may curb certain behaviors, whether appropriate or not, you know, and types of language or whatever that are part of clubhouse culture in baseball. And so it may have made them a bit uncomfortable. But, you know, this person certainly has the means to provide adequate care for their child when they're not at work. And quite frankly, at that kid's age, why isn't he in school? Although there are oh, like I, lessons, I, I have, you know? I have the answer to that, actually. Oh, good. I right. have the answer. Uh, Adam LaRoche. They're homeschooled in the locker room? Yes. Well, Adam Sign LaRoche up. Uh, was uh, in a 2013 Washington Post article. Uh, he talked about how he and Drake play baseball in the morning. Uh, if he's not playing in the game that day, they either go fishing or play golf. At night, they play ping pong at their rental home. Uh, quote, and if we got time, LaRoche said, we do some homework. And then we're not big on school, LaRoche said. I told my wife he's going to learn a lot more useful information in the clubhouse than he will in the classroom as far as life lessons. So there's your answer. He's an idiot. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, yeah, was, we, we earn the right to be idiots without children. Um, but not provide proper education? Well, 
Well, that's like a whole nother conversation yeah. because if we go back in history, actually, you were the teacher and the parent. Now we are in a different place where we all place judgment on whether or not your child shows up to regular school or is homeschooled or whatever. But I think there's value. There's a reason why there's a, it was once take your daughter to work and now it's take your child to work. There's a reason that those kinds of, of days are created because there is a lesson in watching your parent work, watching an adult work. And I also think that children need to learn how where they fit in an adult environment, and they don't learn that without being in one. But this I, isn't visiting an adult environment. Right. This is the, the kids punching the clock with dad. Yeah. Well, and, the, him coming and it every day like is different. the schooling different. is an afterthought. Yeah, an after, after, afterthought. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, here, one of my takes on this is, so Adam LaRoche, uh, as uh, Rich was kind of alluding to, Adam LaRoche, without ever really distinguishing himself as a major leaguer, but still, he's good enough to play Major League Baseball. Uh, he's made about $70 million uh, in aggregate as a ma- Major League Baseball player. So chances are Drake, as he grows up, will want for nothing, even if he's dumb as a rock and doesn't you know, know anything that he should have learned in school. He'll probably be okay. But you know, we'll have to deal with Drake. That's the real problem. Drake is going to be out in our lives somehow. The, the older he gets, uh, all of the lessons that he didn't learn by being raised as a child among other children, all the w- w- lessons he didn't learn by being this clubhouse pet, apparently annoying to some people, maybe cherished by some other people. <laughs> uh, it, it, and to me, it is part of a trend of um, raising somebody incredibly special, somebody incredibly wonderful to you, the parent. And, and you know, Jacques, when you're saying the parents are disruptive, there's a particular kind of parent who when you say to the parent, you know, um, this is getting to be a little problem here or your child's getting a little disruptive. Have you seen the parent who actually talks to the child about that? this? They'll say, okay, we're going to have to go now, Elwin, because this man here is having a problem uh, with us. So I guess that lady doesn't like the noise. We're, I guess we're going to have to leave now. Um, it's sort of <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I think if there's a work environment where everyone's truly on board and has kind of holistically bought into a concept of uh, workplace and parenting that are, you know, uh, integrated in such a way that people are able to get their work done, you know, uh, then, you know, if that works for you, fine. But to me, you know, the places where I've worked, um, have not had those environments. You know, I, I used to work in a summer theater box office, and this woman would bring her kid in a car seat and just plunk her in the corner. And I felt bad for the kid because, you know, she was not being entertained or what have you. And then if she started crying, you know, we're on the phones with customers and they're hearing a crying baby in the background. It just wasn't the right environment for that child. Uh, and so, and and I've had, you know... Uh, People have a you know kid you know be out of school sick or whatever, and they've had to bring you know the child to work, and uh, and they're trying to cope with that sudden disruption of their lives, but at the same time now they've got this distraction where you're kind of like, why did you even come to work? You should have just stayed home with your kid. Well, you know, I mean, look, there's, like, I don't know, I've been watching the OJ series and there's, uh, you know, this moment where Marsha Clark is kind of publicly humiliated in court because she's got a childcare problem, you know, and my heart goes out to her for that. Mm -hmm. And the kind of thing that you're talking about, I think is, you know, 
we all have to roll with those punches. You got a sick kid or whatever. You have to deal with these things. But this is, you know, and, and so Rich, it goes back to the question too: whether this is fair to, to poor Drake LaRoche at all <laughs> that he's being raised to be a dumb baseball player, basically. Well, it's okay, the family so business. that's that's kind of loaded, right? <laughs> that's like the most you, loaded uh, feed right. of a question that I've business. ever received. Go, f- feel free to push back and feel free to reframe what I just said. <laughs> yeah, You're right; that was completely that unfair. <laughs> um, well, to 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 the greater point here. Um, I completely agree with you, Jacques, that um, if there's a – you have to honor the culture of the workplace first and foremost. Um, uh, that aside, um, I think we need to get out of how people are raising their kids. You know, um, I've heard people complain about um, how it will become the the death nail for the future of a child that gets breastfed until they're two. And that's that's there's a piece of absurdity, you know, these projections that we have about what the net outcome is going to be to any of the things that we do for our kids. I've raised five kids. Well, I'm raising five kids. I don't think that we're ever done with that. And every time I think that I figured this thing out, I recognize that I'm completely, completely wrong. And the one thing that I've learned throughout this process is judge people less. You know, about what they're doing because, you know, God only knows if this thing that looks wacky to us is actually really the key to how to raise a kid. It's funny. There's this uh, interesting interview with RuPaul in uh, Vulture, New York Magazine. And one of the points that I love that he brought up is this idea that we now live in a world where we feel like the environment must reflect who we are. And I think that's kind of in essence, what we're grappling with because, Jacques, you don't have any children and so your environment is one in which there is no children. I live in a world where, like, there are toddlers and they and they exist and they are savage and that's, like, the world that I live in. And I'm, like, trying to navigate what do I want my environment to look like. Like, I know the parts of my world, but do I want my environment to reflect every yeah. single part. My environment my, is filled with breakables and sharp objects. <laughs> we're we're going to have to transition out of this topic uh, in just a second. I, I just did want to quickly say two things. To your point, you know, I'm having all these flashbacks. My father was a real estate agent, had kind of an unpredictable schedule. So he'd bring me along with him, you know, but I would like the whole idea was I'd sit in the car and read a comic book or something or I, I certainly wasn't you know, I was really – it was understood that I would be seen and not heard and if I was in his office. Again, here's some comic books. Here's your book from school. Uh, read this. Shut up. I mean he, he didn't talk to me that way but that was certainly the message. I also just want to give a shout out to Bethany Rando who's my current uh, hero. She's the wife of a former Major League Baseball player. And she posted, I've gotten so many messages about what a wonderful thing it is that Adam retired for his son. And yes, my boys spent time in the clubhouse when it was approved and appropriate and loved every minute of it. My concern is and has always been that these kids already live a very privileged life where rules don't always apply, where ridiculous money just pours in, where so many of the things we could afford were free and where we were offered immediate seating at restaurants and other events ahead of hardworking people who were there before us. My boys saw this. It sounds ridiculous to most people, but the reality is that our job is to raise dependable, hardworking, and respectful men. It's hard enough in the world, they see. But to teach your child that when your boss makes a decision you don't agree with, you just 
retire. In the real world, that's not an option. So you go, Bethany Randa. Yeah. I'm with you 100%. All right, so we're going to do a quick transition here, and we're going to, first of all, we'll play a little bit of a song. Uh, I think sort of an unlikely pop hit. Uh, it's called Stressed Out. It's by 21 Pilots. Here we go. I wish I found some better sounds no one's ever heard. I wish I had a better voice to sing some better words. I wish I found some chords in an order that is new. I wish I didn't have to rhyme every time I sang. I was told when I get older all my fears would shrink, but now I'm insecure and I care what people think. My name's Blurry Face and I care what you think. My name's Blurry Face and I care what you think. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when the mama sang us to All right. So um, there's so many things to say about this song, and I'm reminded <laughs> of the fact that uh, also these days you really do have to watch the video. The video is full of all kinds of really interesting images that amplify what's being said. Just to give you some, sort of a sense, the chart history of the song, it peaked at two in the Hot 100, the sort of ultimate big deal chart. Uh, it's now at four. It spent 21 weeks on the chart uh, charts. It, it started, as many songs do, on more specific charts, on the rock charts and the alternative charts, and then crossed over. I mean, it, it is legitimately, I think at this point, kind of a crossover hit. Although, to be honest with you, at the beginning of this week, I had never heard of it or 21 Pilots. Um, but, um, but Tanisha, I know this seems like such an unlikely song, and the video really kind of deepens, if anything, the, the sense of fecklessness and helplessness and gloom and malaise, uh, cloudy days, and these guys riding around on their big wheel tricycles. You know, it makes me think I – and you guys will have to post like the name of the artist, but it makes me think of the song, I ain't happy, I'm feeling sad, I got sunshine in a bag, I'm useless, but not for long. And it's like the we're same. Thinking, we're thinking it might be the gorillas. Thank you. Yeah. The gorillas. <laughs> so it's like legitimately the same kind of beat, the same theme. It's awful. <laughs> and I had actually heard it on the radio and not watch the video until this week. And then the video even made it more awful because of the grown men riding on tricycles. I sort of feel like, you know, you probably live at home already. So just ask your mom to sing to you and put you to sleep. And well, move on. I want to know I want to know why this is wow. popular though. Why is why is it, you know, I mean, pop pop music to me, Jacques. You know, it's sort of the. I was trying to think of the like the polar opposite of the, this song. You know, you're not very happy about your life, uh, obviously. So, what do you do? Uh, well, there was one guy who said, "Baby, this town rips the bones from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. We got to get out while we're young, because tramps like us, baby, we were born to run." So we've gone from that, from the suicide machines to the big wheel tricycles. But I, why would this song be appealing, though? Why? Well, I I mean I you know, a it's catchy, you know, uh which with a pop song if you've got a great hook. Um I I mean I I watched it, watched the video and I thought it, the video was was interesting. I thought, you know, in terms of that capturing that moment of of realizing that life is no longer simple, that you're an adult and that you have to worry about money and, you know, uh, and um, and missing that 
that innocence uh, that you maybe took for granted as a child, um, you know, when you were able to hang out in the locker room for days. And so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, I, uh, I mean, I actually, you know, have been kind of going through a bit of that moment of so much of my life is is work and where and missing that sense of fun and joy uh of of and freedom and comfort that you had in childhood so i you know i had not similarly had not heard the song um because I'm strictly Bieber these days, but uh, you know <laughs> <You're> I, <sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> I, so uh, I get it. Uh, anyway, uh, so I I listened to it a few times and I was like walking around the office going <laughs> blurry face and, <laughs> and I care what you think. think. But then I wonder if it's those two, like it's the I care what you think and I'm stressed out, which are the pieces that are universal, yeah, sure. and not directly tied to like. 21-year-old angst. Well, so student loans and, you know, and, and everything else that they're concerned about. These yes, are, student these loans are, like, maybe the main specific hardship that mm-hmm. the song mentions, exactly. right? Yeah. And it, and it just keeps, and these are things that we're all facing. I mean, we ducked our student loans. I'm taking a look at what my kids are looking at in student loans. And, you know, one of my sons got his first job and over a third of his salary is going to pay back his student loans. That's some, that limits in a very significant way what he can do. Um, and uh, so it's ask you to sing to him. I will sing to and that put boy. Him to sleep. Um, <laughs> and uh, sing it's him interesting because I had actually heard the song and then I read the lyrics and I realized that it's good old days. I thought that they were singing good dope days, which changed <laughs> the meaning of the song completely. It certainly changed the meaning of blurry face. <laughs> yeah. Well, Do we you know, know what they mean by blurry face? No, I think that they have said that blurry face is some kind of uh, – Jonathan, you may know this uh, – some kind of collective entity uh, that reflects may- maybe both – It's a, uh, there's two of them, right? There's, it's a duo, mm-hmm. 21 Pilots. They're out of Ohio. And I, they have made an attempt to explain blurry f- face, but somehow or other it hasn't stuck in my head. Uh, and I, I wasn't really too worried about that. I, I guess what – first of all, one thing that I wondered was maybe this is just kind of how pop music, a certain kind of al- alternative – post-emo pop music sounds these days. Maybe this is, maybe I shouldn't be surprised that this is popular. So uh, It's not so, these days. The song I sang is like straight up from the 90s. Exactly. And I bet you, you could find one from every decade well, <laughs> so previous. I, I went and found their previous hit. They, they had sort of a hit with a song called Tear In My Heart. Let me just play a little of that for you. Sometimes you gotta bleed and know that you're alive and have a soul. But it takes someone to come around to show you how she's a tear in my heart. I'm alive. So a little bit of a Ben Folds ripoff, but really, you know, I mean, that's not how they sound. They don't sound miserable like this all the time. By the way, I'm being told Blurry Face is sort of the opposite of lead singer uh, Tyler Joseph. He's the hide to Tyler's Jekyll, that he's some kind of alternative person or thing that speaks to uh, the singer all the time. But, but yeah, I mean, one of the questions that I had, Rich, was, is this song an anthem for a generation of people who, not that there is such a thing as a generation of, of everybody, but if, is it appealing to thousands and thousands of millennials who 
have absorbed the message that you're talking about, student loans and not great prospects, but haven't been fed any concomitant message about their own capacity to deal with it, to just get up and, you know, ball up their fists and fight their way through whatever malaise they're going through. Yeah, so that that was sort of the the promise that we were given, right? That if we, you know, that if we tightened up our belt and stood up straight and we were quiet in the restaurant and, you know, and, and we were the good boys, uh, that everything would work out all right. But we're seeing that that actually doesn't pan out, that we don't have that much control in, in our ultimate outcome. Um, so uh, so is it a, a message for a particular generation? I don't think so. Um, if I listen to the lyrics, the thing that I'm noticing that everybody has the biggest issue with is not the construct of the of the universe that they're living in, but a conversation about how they want to deal with it, that they want mama to sing them a song, that they want to do that massive piece of regression. And um, and folks want to pin that to a generation, right? Um, but if I think back musically, you know, we've got uh, – I could go back to um, Pink Floyd uh, on their wall album um, with this tune about singing to uh, their mother. Uh, trying to uh, to have mom come along and make everything better and clean for them. That's not, I think, an unusual concept for folks who are knee-deep in the hoopla uh, to want to go back and start back again from the place where things were cleaner. Um, so the the telling will be is if this generation actually legitimately gets stuck in this place and doesn't find their fight. But I think that we're being super premature in an <laughs> expectation, <laughs> you know, that they're going to – with this projection of where they are at this point. You mean the it's song isn't – because is, I'm like – It's not the, the end of the road. End, yeah. Right, and I'm on the, the older end of the millennial generation. But I think the thing that I'm trying to navigate is the loss of the idealism that – the country I live in is not a caste system. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's, if anything, that's the the positive takeaway from being stressed out in the song is that, like, I have these student loans that I'm, like, trying to run away from that are, like, literally consuming my entire income. And will I ever be able to even match where my parents were income-wise? Right. Like, is that ever, is that even a real realistic goal? For me, and that is that's enough. That is, I will I will go full force and and plant my flag in that song and being yeah. like that does stress me out. Absolutely. But on the other side of it is like, what do you do? Because I I I am living at home. I'm millennial living at home, making that choice because the the college loans and the job I want don't allow for me to like live the life that I grew accustomed to. Mm. Maybe that's my, <laughs> that goes back to the parenting thing. Um, the helicopter, not helicopter parenting thing. But that, that, is a, that is a stressor. And I don't know quite yet how we break down a system that seems so entrenched. I think we hang with it a little bit longer. Uh, yeah, I mean, Shock, I, I, I certainly don't mean, mean to suggest, uh, apropos of Rich's comments, yes, that this song is some kind of instruction manual uh, or Rosetta Stone <laughs> for dealing with millennials. <laughs> but there is a little bit uh, of it in it of, I mean, the feeling you get, uh, fairly or unfairly, about this song is, well, I tried really hard for like half a day and this is going to be too hard. Right, and that's <laughs> probably the piece that home. makes me crazy. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 
as you remember, I, I vociferously defended Rebecca Black's Friday. Yes. <laughs> and well. so if you're having a lousy Thursday, yeah. just know that you'll have your cereal waiting for you on Friday. Right. Got to right decide on. which seat. For First of all, you got to decide which seat you're going to sit in. Exactly. <laughs> uh, now, that's an anthem. That's yeah. something that we can live for. What? Decide which seat you're going to sit in? Yeah. Yeah. Those battle are the cry. decisions. It's a battle cry. There is there a were one. That's a battle yeah, cry. bring up Rebecca Black. <laughs> All right, so uh, we, uh, uh, what, what better note to go out on then? All right, well, so we'll uh, take a break, and we'll come back. So we're back with the nose with Jacques Lamar, Rich Holland, and Tanisha Dugan. Uh, one of the things that Rich was saying uh, during the break is uh, he can't kind of get used to these uh, wistful evocations of Mama, whether it's uh, in uh, 21 Pilots songs or Justin Bieber songs. Well, one of the things Mama used to do, particularly when you needed a little comfort food, was make you some Kraft macaroni and cheese because she didn't have time to make it from scratch because she had to go to work. She couldn't bring you. You see, the whole <laughs> show is connected by what we call a Papulian through line. You know? so, uh, so she would make you the Kraft macaroni and cheese which had this kind of, you know, I mean, it is, it is a f- sort of an iconic food taste, at least for some people, and it's a, uh, been around uh, and unchanging, or at least allegedly unchanging long enough so that uh, mom could make something that she ate as a child for you, and you could eat it too, and you would share that way. Uh, except that Kraft decided to do a little something different, which was to sort of get a lot of the crappy stuff uh, that you liked so much out of it, uh, the chemicals and the dyes and the stuff like that, the fluorescent orange uh, qualities uh, of it, and uh, change it a uh, make it a little more, little more in line with modern tastes. But they made the curious decision of not telling anybody. Uh, and so uh, rather than freak people out, they put 50 million boxes of it out there and let everybody eat it and not really complain about it and get used to it. And then now they've launched this new campaign. Uh, and who better to, uh, to symbolize a big food company putting one over on people than Craig Kilborn? Uh, here's Craig to tell you about it. For the past three months, we've been quietly selling Kraft macaroni and cheese with no artificial flavors, preservatives, or dyes. And guess what? Moms didn't notice. Kids didn't notice. Dogs didn't notice. This person named Bill didn't notice. Spring breakers, coffee makers, movers and shakers, working from home fakers, none of them noticed a thing. Because this Kraft mac and cheese still tastes like Kraft mac and cheese. It's changed, but it hasn't. Well, Jacques, we live in Connecticut where you're never allowed to change anything ever, ever, ever. Not for nothing. We've been called the land of steady habits since the 1700s. So I guess maybe we can understand the psychology behind this or is it something else? I think it's brilliant. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I I think the article that you sent around uh, referenced the launch of New Coke and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, which is, you know, uh, stands alongside other great ideas like – Crystal Pepsi. Uh, and, you know, Crystal Pepsi, it was like, no, we want our artificial colors. And so I think it was very, very interesting and very smart uh, the way they, they launched this, unless, uh, of course, you have people out there with turmeric allergies or something. But uh, it would actually make me more inclined to go buy Kraft macaroni and cheese now than I than I would have been. Not the fact that they snuck it past us, but that it's you know mm-hmm. not quite as hideous for you. 
Um, that being said, uh, my husband always buys off brands when I'm not looking. So uh, we'll probably continue to have every chemical imaginable in our artificial <laughs> cheese. Yes, instead of the artificial dyes and things like that, there's a combination of paprika, annatto, I don't even know what annatto is, and turmeric uh, that maintains the classic yellow, I would call that yellow, hue. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Is this a, do you agree? Work of genius? I mean, I think it's great. I'm a avid label reader, so we haven't had craft mag. I, I say we as in me because my mother still buys it. And so when this came around, I was like, oh, she buys this because she likes to feed it to London. Let me go see if this box is all artificial free. And it was the ones you make in the microwave. And it hasn't trickled down to that product yet because that was as awful as always. So I haven't had the pleasure of trying this mac and cheese, if that's what they want to call it. It really should have been <laughs> samples in studio for us. A little right. let down by Kion Wolf. And... <laughs> I actually did, I did buy some boxes of it. I did cook some up. I gave one to Tucker. I don't know if he ever I, – I, I was hoping he would test it. Yeah, what were you going to say, Rich? I, I don't think it's genius. I think it's just a preemptive strike. Hmm. Um, we're Again, we're living in this place where people are have opinions about absolutely everything. And I've seen brands launch in the most ridiculous ways um, where – Prior to getting out into the marketplace and sort of letting themselves be present, uh, they turn everything into a big PR push. And and I I maintain that social media is really the construct of the public relations industry because so much backpedaling needs to to happen around brand design right now. Um, So recognizing that, Crispin decided, let's do it the other way. You know, let's create this enormous focus group. Uh, and not let these folks know that that's what they are taking part in, and then release the thing. But isn't um, that genius? That's it's it's a piece of necessity, I think. Okay. And I think that we're moving more and more towards uh, brands having to think about um, how they uh, how they launch. Um, I remember, uh, like about a little over a decade ago, we had redeveloped all of the brand stuff for Healthy Choice. And um, and what the uh, brand managers at Conagra let us know is um, you could change the recipe a tiny little bit and put a big violator on the package that says new and you're going to see a bump in sales. Um, that that was actually a part of the every, every couple of years formula of how these brands evolved. Um, but that's before we had uh, this, this pool of, of of popular opinion, um, that's changed absolutely everything. Well, it's um, what you said before you, about Adam LaRoche. Everybody gets to have their say about everything. So that's what you're up against right mm-hmm. now. And I do think they're sort of playing defense to a certain degree. Yeah, mm-hmm. And the defense they're playing is if they launched it the other way and 20 people got on Twitter and said, I don't like it. It tastes too sweet. It tastes, it tastes, right. There's a snowball effect that can yep. happen pretty quickly. Then it becomes kind of a thing. But they never had to tell us. Right. They don't. Well, yeah, that's true. They never had to tell us if you know if if they put it out there and we never noticed. But I mean, but, but why? That's, that's, but the, that's how they control the bump, right? So yeah. they and tell us. Say, and now they keep selling new. the same way that exactly. Now they're saying new. And yeah. by the way, everybody's tried it and loved. Yeah, which is you why know? I think it's genius. Yeah, because they basically were like, before you have a chance to complain, you've had a chance to complain. Right. And so, and you didn't. Mm-hmm. You were too stupid to read the label. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my phosphate? Well, at, at the, Where's at my I yellow mean, dye? Is it stupid or do you read the label every time you buy a thing that you've been buying for the past five years? True. Yeah. 
I, I do think at a design level, they did, they did another thing, and I, I would defer to Rich on this, but, uh, but I'll give you a homework assignment, uh, which is go look at the new box. Look at the box that uh, Craig Kilborn is uh, holding. Then go look at the old box. What they've got on the new box, and it flashed at me the minute I saw it. They have taken one piece of macaroni and turned it up so that it curls up mm-hmm. in the manner of rabbit ears, like the Annie's box. I mean, yep. this is ah. this is one of the things that they're trying to co- compete with, obviously, right. is Annie's oh, macaroni and cheese. Which was healthier. I, I think that box is meant to subliminally echo or mirror Annie's in some way. I think so. I think I'll the, whole, the whole approach the is. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I mean, and it's Easter. <laughs> and I think the other thing that they're dealing with is this, the, the whole idea of sort of socially created meaning, right? That, right. that that's the environment we live in. That first of all, they, they did announce last April that they were going to do something. At some point, they were going to do something. Um, and uh, – and so people immediately like got on Twitter and stuff said, "Well, it tastes. I don't like the way it tastes now." Mm-hmm. Well, they hadn't done anything at that point. They just but announced they were going. They to. announced they were going to, and people immediately started announcing, "Well, they didn't like the new taste." Well, there wasn't any new taste. So I think that's the reality: is that you know, in fact, our perceptions aren't as stable or as empirical as we want them to be. And 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 as Rich is saying, it's a new era. You just you got to deal with that somehow. Yeah. It's a dangerous it, era for the consumer, though, because it does get us to a place where it's like we're going to change the product if you're not. Paying Paying attention, you may not know what you're getting, and maybe we'll tell you later. Maybe we won't. Well, and, and the, the there's something in the framing of of that commercial that that Crispin did that I thought was um was was a little maniacal. Um, what was the tag was? Uh, it's changed, but it hasn't. Um, do you remember like in the '80s? It was this Dudley Moore movie called Crazy People. Uh, in which he was an ad exec who uh, who was burning out completely, so he went he he got uh, he got um, put into a mental institution and decided to form an ad agency of all of the folks who were in the mental institution, <laughs> and they proceeded to um, just tell the truth about products and uh, and that sent sales going through the ceiling on all these products. It was stuff like you know Volvo. It's boxy, but it's good. Um, and uh, and there there's an there's an element that the agency is kind of playing with that in the most incredibly cynical way. Um, that's that's that doubles down my lack of faith and trust in advertising in general. Well, just to end ra- this segment, uh, I would say that it sort of proves that you can't just trust everything to the people, right? The people don't know what they're talking about. The people think something has changed when it hasn't. The people don't know that something has changed okay. when it has. And we ask people what they want to name a research vessel. <laughs> they say Bodie McBoatface, which was going to be one of our other topics today. That they tried to crowdsource the name of a polar research vessel in England. <laughs> And the overwhelming vote was in favor of Bodie McBoatface. The people cannot be trusted. We have to take a break. We'll be back. Lecter's been complaining that people have changed, too. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Benjamin Esty and Alexandra Ingber. The part of Bill Curry was played by Goose Gossage. 
For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff on their big wheels, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday, scramble once and for all, does torture accomplish anything? And now, back to the nose. We're going to talk to a uh, game theory, a mathematician about that on Monday. So it's time to recommend things. Uh, So our panel is going to do that. Uh, Jacques, you want to go first? Yes. Um, I, I want to uh, endorse a, a book that's actually not out yet, so uh, people should should make a note of this because you can't run to the store and get it yet. But uh, this woman that I went to college with named Ann Leinberger has written a book called The Adjustments, and it's this really interesting kind of collision of um, – yoga and manicured lawns in Fairfield County mm-hmm. and the fi- financial collapse and sexual scandals and whatnot. It's it's sort of like the real housewives of Fairfield meets Shavasana meets uh, <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. And so um, it's, a, it's a fun kind of juicy read, but there's really smart stuff to it. And uh, so, again, it's called The Adjustments by uh, Anne Leinberger. And uh, if I can do a quick yeah. uh, plug for our new exhibit at the Mark Twain House Museum that just opened last night uh, called In Their Father's Image. And a lot of people wanted to know more about Mark Twain's daughters. And so the exhibit is specifically on uh, his daughters and the women they became, some of the tragedies they they uh, they faced um, at young ages and uh, and his one daughter who survived and kind of protected him and sort of changed his legacy in some ways by being a little overprotective. So it's a it's a really fascinating job. And, and our uh, curators, um, Tracy Brindle and Mallory Howard, have done um, an amazing job on it. So it's um, it's open now and people should check it out. All right. Uh, yes. Mark Twain's daughters who could not turn back time. Uh... <laughs> Face reality on their own. All right, Tanisha Dugan, what have you got for us? Um, New Britain Museum is doing an unbirthday on April 7th um, in support, I guess, of their Dolly exhibit. And I just love it because I love that song from um, Alice in Wonderland, A Very Merry Unbirthday. So I think it's going to be a fun Saturday and for all you parents out there who are looking for something to do with your child on a Saturday morning, uh, that's where... The Harveys will be. Um, and Sex with Strangers is going on. I have gifts for you guys. Right. So i got to let you know that. And if you call our box office and tell them that you want to be nosy, uh, we'll give you 10 bucks off. Ooh. Right on. That's really good. <laughs> I was going to say, can you explain where that is when you're endorsing Sex with Strangers? You're not actually endorsing oh, the activity. Oh, it's a play yeah. at the There you go. There you go. <laughs> Context always so important. <laughs> all right. All right. Rich, Rich Holland, what have you got for us? I've got two things, um, and they're kind of related. My, uh, my head's been in the, uh, the hearts in, Art- in Hartford lately, um, especially this week. So uh, two things I want to reference. Um, first is EBK Galleries. Um, okay. They're they're doing a, a cool thing in April, and their opening is April 2nd. Uh, they're getting a guest curator, um, and this one is the awesome uh, Sharon Butler. She runs a blog and in, in artist uh, residency program called uh, Two Coats of Paint. Uh, she's a brilliant, brilliant person, and uh, so go check out uh, this show. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, and there's also a uh, a blog called ttbythenumbers.news. Um, they're calling a bunch of uh, sort of guest commentators in for their perspective section. So if you go to the site, it's ctbythenumbers.news perspectives. 
and um, Bob Englehart is doing cartooning for them. Uh, um, Maggie Gunther Osborne, who is uh, president of the Connecticut Council for Philanthropy, wrote a piece um, recently. Uh, we're reading this stuff in the office and getting into heated discussions. Um, uh, lots of stuff to agree with. Lots of stuff to want to you know throw things at. So. Um, and uh, and I've got a piece that just posted that's you know that's a little tribute to some of the stuff going on in the city. All right, uh, I'm just going to use my time to uh, recommend uh, the legacy of Gary Shandling. Very sad to hear about uh, this yesterday. In particular, uh, Larry Sanders show. So much uh, about the Larry Sanders show is it just sort of shows up in the comedy of today. Uh, particularly if you like things like Arrested Development, or Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, comedy that uh, where you sort of figure out where the laughs are. The comedy is sometimes more tonal than rhythmic. Uh, everything that R- Ricky Gervais has ever done, uh, and Ricky Gervais would be the first to tell you, uh, very much um, descends from uh, uh, Larry Sanders' show, um, particularly, well, particularly Ricky Gervais' series Extras. That whole notion of having celebrities appear as themselves or as warped and distorted versions of themselves with slightly different storylines. It's uh, where the young writer John Apatow got his start. John Stewart was uh, introduced to the world pretty much as uh, this uh, up-and-coming possible re- replacement host. Whenever Larry was sick or had to go away, John Stewart would host the show and he'd get raves. Uh, he appeared on the show as John Stewart. And Larry, Larry Sanders, who was threatened by everything, was especially threatened by this young uh, up-and-coming uh, comedian, John Stewart. Um, and, and I would say it also in particularly the storyline in which uh, David Duchovny uh, has an obvious crush on Larry that Larry doesn't really quite know how to understand or talk about. Kind of sets up a, a whole bunch of jokes that were later used or a, a, a vein of comedy that was uh, later explored in Seinfeld and uh, lots of other places, but really very much ahead of its time. So it, it's um, – it, I should also say that that, that uh, because Gary Shandling essentially stopped working, at a certain point he put out a box set called something I, th- I think called Not Just the Best of Larry Sanders. It was his own curated version of what he thought well, were things that he really loved. And then he did this obsessive thing where he recorded real interviews with a lot of the people like Carol Burnett and Sharon Stone and uh, people who had been on the show, but did real interviews with him. It took him a year uh, of interviewing and producing. So the the DVD extras, which are usually pretty lame on most box sets, uh, are the, the startlingly original, very raw set of conversations uh, with real people that he really did. So anyway, uh, we'll miss you, Gary Shandling, but we uh, love you, Jacques Lamar, Tanisha Dugan, and Rich Holland. We'll be back on Monday with The Scramble. Thanks to Jonathan McPants and everyone else who helped out today. I'm glad they took the artificial ingredients out of mac and cheese. So now I can add my own artificial ingredients. Okay, guys, load up the cheddar-flavored butylated hydroxyanisole. 